0: Welcome to episode 290 of Stageworthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Stageworthy is a podcast about people in Canadian theatre featuring conversations with actors, directors, playwrights, and more. Thank you for listening. If you've been listening to Stageworthy for a while, or maybe you're a first-time listener and you're listening through a link on the website, did you know that you can subscribe so that you never miss an episode? You can do that by searching for Stageworthy on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you get podcasts, and clicking on the handy subscribe button. That way, every week, the new episode of Stageworthy will be delivered right to you. And if you subscribe, let me know that you're a new subscriber. If you want to drop me a line, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at philrickaby, and my website is philrickaby.com. You can find Stageworthy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at stageworthypod, and the website where you can find the archive of all 290 episodes is at stageworthypodcast.com. My guest this week is playwright Brad Fraser. Brad's memoir, All the Rage, is available now at your favorite bookseller. Um, just to, to to get started, the book is called All the Rage, and it's a it's a memoir. As a, as a playwright, was there anything in particular that that drove you or really wanted you that you made you really think about and want to write a memoir?
1: Well, no, i had been asked to uh, write a memoir a couple of times in my life, and always demurred because I felt I was uh, too young or whatever, but. I was uh, posting on uh, World AIDS Day on, on December 1st, as I do every year. I have a whole file full of people who have died, and I post them on Twitter and uh, Facebook, and I tell some stories and that kind of thing. And uh, Bruce Walsh, who was the publisher at uh, University of Regina Press, contacted me and said, you know, these stories are really great. You really should tell them because we're losing this history And I thought, well, that's a cool way to maybe not write a memoir and write a memoir at the same time. I'm writing about myself, but I'm also (laughs) writing about all the people who were lost. So it gave me a a different kind of lens to look at the idea of of, uh, writing a memoir through. And that being said, it's only a partial memoir because it only goes up to the year 2000.
0: Right, right. That gives you room for a sequel. That's right. (laughs) But you know, it's this is the second time today that that um, uh, the the idea of the 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 loss of memory about the AIDS epidemic has 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 been mentioned for me. Um, just the fact that that uh, a lot of people who are a lot younger than than I think you or I um, are are growing up, sort of thinking, oh, that was, must have been a really rough couple of years or something like that, when it was like a decade of people dying.
1: Yeah, at least a decade. It was actually mm-hmm. about two decades of people dying, if you start right. from the beginning of the plague and then go up to where people stopped dying. And that's why I stop it in the year 2000, mm. because that's where people really stopped dying in the same numbers they had been after uh, the advent of protease inhibitors and different mm-hmm. treatments and that kind of thing.
0: Mm. It's, yeah. And I think that, that, that the idea, the, that forgetting is, I mean, we, people do have short memories and, um, because we only, we often only think about what's happening right now and that's, what's relevant. Um, and so the idea that, that so many people in, in the community were, were dying in, in such large numbers is is something that I think, and because it's not considered a a, a death sentence now, as it was in the certainly in the eighties and up until as you say two thousand, um, I think that 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 a lot of younger people don't understand how bad it was.
1: No, and you know we we like to forget things, particularly that were painful. You know, they say a a woman near to, never really remembers childbirth the way it happened because if she did, she would never go through it again. Or if we've been through, you know, I suffered from spinal stenosis for five years mm. and was in a great deal of pain at that time. And I have a very good memory. But when I look back on those years, they're very hard to remember. And I think that our our brain does something to protect us that takes mm. away a lot of the unpleasantness of memory and kind of dulls it down. Mm. And You know, I I used to talk to classes of of, uh, young people at the universities and that kind of thing. They would read Poor Superman and I would talk about the AIDS uh, years and it became harder and harder to tell them the story, to make them understand. So I hope that in writing the book and in evoking the people I knew and, and, uh, you know, actually allowing them to be characters and the reader Mm -hmm. to get to know them, that it would bring some of that sense of immediacy of how horrible it was when mm. people were sick and dying on such a massive level when we were so young as mm. well you know yeah. this was happening when i was in my early 20s this whole thing started so it really took the bloom out of uh the joy of gay liberation at the time
0: sure i i remember seeing a picture of i think it was the San Francisco Men's Choir and it was uh um a picture showing the the all of the people who were new to the choir Uh, who were post AIDS epidemic were wearing a white sweater and the three survivors of the, of the epidemic uh, were wearing black sweaters. And so we had this massive room of white with just a few people in black. And it was, it was like this, this really stark reminder of this is, is the kind of, 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 of horrible uh, 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 numbers of deaths that were seen at the time.
1: Well, yes, and and it also explains why it can be so hard to remember as well, because so many people are gone, mm-hmm. and so many people from that particular generation, you know, the men who were uh, 10 years older than me were the first to go, and then I think the men who were about five years younger than me uh, were kind of the last to worry about it. But mm-hmm. within that period, there were, you know tens of thousands if not millions of people lost to aids and it was really dramatic and it was Mm. really fast it wasn't like people were disappearing here and there it was like people were dying in droves for Mm -hmm. most of the 80s yeah
0: yeah
1: so a lot of the people who who we would give testament to who we would give witness to are people who would have done it they're dead you know there's so few of us from that generation left Mm That um, it, it's a it's a tremendous responsibility to bear, and I know a mm. lot of people uh, in my age range don't want to relive it, don't want to go back there, don't want to remember what it was like because it was so traumatic and it was so completely horrifying.
0: I think there's also there's also a perception. That it's all alright now because uh, through the AIDS epidemic, then we have uh, 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 gay rights that and, and all of the things, all of the the marriage equality and all of that. It came out of the the AIDS epidemic, and that's all right. But that's something that only people who never lived through it could actually think.
1: I'm sorry. I, uh, is there a question there?
0: No, I guess it's not a question. It's really just sort of <laughs> oh, like yeah, a, a. I wasn't sure how
1: to respond. No. Yes, <laughs> that is that is true. That is very true.
0: Yeah. Um, just to turn uh, towards theater, um, I know that that uh, part of your story is is that um, you you grew up you grew up poor and and you had a the, an abusive childhood. So what what took you from that to theater? What brought you to theater?
1: Well, that's a a kind of a hard question. I guess I sort of address it in the book. I mean, you know, it was creativity was always my outlet for my anger, for my pain, whatever it was, whether I was drawing or whether I was writing, excuse me, or whether I was acting, which, you know, came later on. Uh, It took me to someplace else and it allowed me to exercise my imagination. And I think that. You know, I'm a very unlikely sort of personality to end up in the theatre. I'm from the wrong class. I'm from mm. the wrong background. Mm. And uh, and to become a writer of all things when I come from, you know, people who, who are not known for their academic acumen, uh, if you will, mm. is is quite astounding. And I think, you know, I have to say, it was, I believe it was my gayness that took me there. I believe it was the fact that I needed someplace that was relatively safe for queer people Hmm. to function, to be themselves, to interface with other queer people. And the theater is better for that than a lot of other places in the world. That's not to say that homophobia doesn't exist in the Hmm. theater. There's a great deal of it in the theater, but that uh, as, as uh, sort of, as it goes, it's not as bad as other places. And also I really have always been very good at making something out of nothing. And for Hmm. me, That's what the theatre is. The theatre is incantations and magical gestures that we pass down to one another that create entire worlds out of Mm. nothingness, uh, using just the imagination of the audience. And for me, that's always been one of the most exciting things about doing anything, but particularly about the theatre.
0: Yeah. Was there, I mean, uh, in terms of your introduction to theatre, was there... Uh, I I assume that 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 was not something you did as a child. When you were older, did you, um, did you, you stumbled into theater? Did somebody invite you to plays? Like how did that, how did, how was that introduction? Do you remember how that happened?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, there was, there was drama class in Mm. in junior high school and we did a lip sync version of Jesus Christ Superstar in the eighth grade. uh, Some of the songs from it, but really Mm. my first exposure to the theater was a, a friend of mine. I'd gone to, I grew up in a, a, certainly in my adolescent years, in an area of Edmonton called Beverly, which is quite a rough working class uh, neighborhood. And when I was in, high, in junior high school, one of my best friends actually didn't go to the local high school. He went to the downtown high school for the arts. Mm. And he did a play in his second year, and he invited me to come and see it. And it was a small musical in a, a black box theater that was done basically with, you know, hairpins and elastic bands with mm. the absolute minimum and it absolutely blew me away how they created an entire world in that little black space and how well acquitted it was. And the next day I went back to my high school and said, OK, I'm leaving here. I was dropping out anyway. And I auditioned for the performing arts program at Vic Comp. And uh, the next year I moved downtown and started going to the art school. Huh. Wow. And that, you know, there, as students, we got tickets to a lot of previews that there were, um, you know, it was the late 70s. So there were a lot of new theaters opening in town. And the Citadel was still there. Mm-hmm. And John Neville was running it at the time. And I saw some really amazing plays. I saw Equus that first mm-hmm. year. The, the new Citadel opened, which was a, a Peter Schaefer play about a boy who puts the eyes out of six horses. Mm-hmm. And we have uh, beautiful men, male dancers dressed as horses and acting in this play. And nudity. You know, I was 17 years old and there was a naked man and woman <laughs> on the stage. It, it completely blew me away. So... I, I sort of, you know, came of age with idea, this idea that theater was something that was confrontational mm. and that involved nudity and violence and things like that. And I thought, well, I come from that world; I should mm. be very good at this.
0: <laughs> you know, when you mention seeing that first show that was like elastics and, and 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 hairpins and just put together in this black box, I'm often reminded of of how it doesn't take like in the theater. We don't need a lot to create. We don't need a whole set. We don't need a, we don't need, we don't really need chairs. We don't even need costumes. We could just be wearing like a a plain pants, plain shirt, and we could be a gentleman, a poor person, a prophet. You can be so many things Mm -hmm. just because you say you are. There's this suspension of disbelief that exists in the theater. And I can imagine that would have been mind blowing to see that simple play as a, as a child at first.
1: Yeah, as a, as a teenager, certainly. But, you know, I get asked a lot because I do work in film and TV a lot. And people say, well, why do you keep going back to the theatre? What is it about the theatre that keeps bringing you back? And it, it, it was exactly what you just said. It's the fact that if I write for film or TV, a scene that is set in Atlantis under the ocean full of people and they're being attacked by an octopus... Well, then we have to build all that stuff and create it through the computer and it takes years and years to do it. Whereas if I do that scene on stage and I say we're in Atlantis, and we're with the merpeople and we're being attacked by octopus and they're just a bunch of actors now suddenly under a green light waving their arms like merpeople <laughs> and we have someone come and bring a giant rope out and wrap it around them, the audience will see exactly what I told them was there mm-hmm. but I don't have to make any of that. Their imagination does it. So that... That sense of immediacy and also that sense of of no limits—that in fact mm. the theater can go much farther than film or TV, because again, you know, it it asks the audience's imagination to do the mm-hmm. work, and I think that's underutilized. And when you say we don't need much to, you know, to create theater, that's my kind of theater. Mm. And, you know, when I've directed with my shows and and the kind of aesthetic I have. As far as I'm concerned, the less bullshit you have on the stage, the better, the less props, the less costumes, the less set, Mm. the less things you have for people to dislike or get in the way of the storytelling. So that's exactly what I love most about the theatre, that and the immediacy, the fact that Mm. it is happening when we're all together in one space, breathing the same air, smelling one another's pheromones. With an awareness of ourselves and what's going on on the stage that I think mm-hmm. makes it a really magical experience mm-hmm. when it works, when it's good. Yeah, yeah.
0: Now, now, going into a, a theater program and just sort of like dropping everything and going in, at the time, were you thinking, I'm going to be an actor? Or how did you make the decision that, that you were going to be primarily a playwright first? Or was that a decision? How did, how did that happen?
1: Well, I I wanted to be an actor and I studied to be an actor. I enjoyed acting. I don't know that I was particularly gifted at it, but I didn't embarrass myself too much. But really, um, you know, in reading the plays we were doing in high school, I went, Jesus, I can write a better play than this for young people. (laughs) And that's sort of how I got my start. My start was writing scenes and little short one-act plays for myself and people in the class And then I eventually wrote a one-act play that won the Alberta Culture Playwriting Competition. Mm. And I got a lot more uh, positive reinforcement as a writer than I did as an actor. But I also came to realize that when you're an actor, you were always at somebody else's mercy. You need somebody else to believe in you and hire you. Mm. in order to do what you do. A writer doesn't necessarily need that. Eventually, mm. yes, you want someone to like the play and produce it and all of that kind of thing, but I didn't have to rely on anyone hiring me to be a writer in order to write a play. So mm. it gave me another kind of freedom, and it also, I felt, gave me more power than I had as an actor.
0: Mm. No, absolutely. There is there is definitely something about, about um, acting where it, it it does become too much about... Uh, needing other people and like you need permission to do it. Somebody has to make you, make you an actor in mm-hmm. some ways. Um, Unidentified human remains and the true nature of love became something of a, a sensation. Um, yeah. And uh, as, as a play, when, 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 when you create, I mean, I think that all of us, when we create something, when we write something in our wildest dreams, it would become a sensation. Um, but um when, when it started, when you were beginning to write it, was there a writing process for that play? And how did it, like, how was it first received before it became what it became?
1: Well, it's interesting because, you know, it was the play that I wrote after uh, the failure of Wolf Boy and Chainsaw Love. And Wolf Boy had gotten quite big in terms of Canadian plays kind of playing in a number of different cities and then ultimately here at theater Pass Passe-Murray in 1984, excuse me, with Keanu Reeves where it famously bombed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I sort of, when I want to get out of the theatre, I hate the theatre. I was being taught to limit what I was doing. So when I sat down to write a play again after a couple of years, I went, okay, you know what? I'm going to throw everything they've told me, everything about using one set, everything about the Tarragon well made play with five characters and a certain unity to it. I'm going to throw all that stuff out the window. And in fact, I'm going to do the exact opposite. (laughs) I am going to have seven characters in my play and they're going to be all ages and all sexualities. I'm going to have multiple locations that we go to and from very quickly. I'm going to write in short, choppy scenes. I'm going to be as rude as I can possibly be. I'm going to be as funny as I can possibly be. And when I wrote it, it was so freeing. It was Mm. so, um, it was also the first play I ever wrote where I was smoking pot while I was writing as well. And I would just, you know, like knock myself out laughing so hard some nights Uh, when I was working on it. And when it was done, I felt like I had really achieved something different and something that people wouldn't expect from me. But I couldn't get anyone to produce it for almost five years. Everyone, Mm. you know, there were people who liked it, but there were people who also said, oh, it's too rude for us. It's far too gay for us. It's far too violent for us. And, you know, that old sort of saw that they love at the theater, our audience won't like it. Well, Mm. you know, I knew those theaters, and frankly, none of them had an audience. So that was crap from the very beginning. But finally, (laughs) I actually. I moved from Edmonton to Calgary because uh, Alberta Theatre Projects had started a new play festival a couple years earlier. And I thought, well, if there's any place in this country where I might get this play done, it's there for that festival. And I went there and I introduced myself to the theatre and I got to know Michael Dobbin and Alan McInnes and the people who were there at the time. And, and they were terrified of it. They were, mm. they didn't want to do it. I talked them into doing a reading the year of the Olympics in, in 1988 in the lobby and made sure there were a lot of people there, and it got a really interesting reaction. But even when we were, when they finally scheduled it for the next festival the following year, you know, the director quit shortly before opening because I felt uh, uh, she didn't felt feel like she had confidence in her, and I didn't have confidence in her. I felt like she was apologizing for the play. Michael Dobbin, who was artistic director at the time, came out and actually told the audience before the show if they wanted to leave now he would refund their money and they basically made that speech before every uh, uh, showing during the festival. And of course, if it had been, you know, an advertising idea it would have been gold because nobody left. Everybody stayed to see what was going on. Hmm. But um, the first audience we had, and it was a fundraiser for the AIDS committee of Calgary. So it was a very sympathetic audience. There were a lot of queer people there. I mean, the show started and for the first time, or four minutes, there was absolute silence. And then David walked in and said, honey, I'm homo. And <laughs> the place cracked up and it became a roller coaster ride from that point of people honestly holding their breath and then screaming in terror or laughter or whatever it was. And after that first showing, I thought, OK, this is interesting. This is good. This has to do something. And of course, it's still being produced today.
0: Mm. It is so rare in the theater to have that kind of like reaction. A lot of times people are so polite. So Mm -hmm. it must have been pretty thrilling to have that vocal
1: reaction. It it was thrilling. But you know what was even more thrilling? And again, I think this has to do with the kind of class I come from. The people who come to my shows, and this has always been true, but it was really true with Remains, are not the people who usually go to the theater. They're Mm. usually people who go to clubs and movies and that kind of thing. They aren't the the genteel kind of educated types we're used to seeing in the theater. And I've always taken great pride in that. And every, every theater that I've had a show produced at has always gone, who are these people and how do we get them to come back? Well, sadly you have to produce more plays like the ones I'm writing and there aren't that many around, you know,
0: That is the big hand wringing in Canadian theatre the last few years is where is the audience going? How do we get those, get people to come to the theatre? And then when they do, they have no idea how to connect with them. Um, and they don't, they don't, uh, um, take the steps. They don't try to reach out. They don't, they don't program for them. They're like, how can we bring these people to the plays that we want to do rather than, you know, the how plays that people can, wanted to want to see. What we
1: give them that they want to come and see? And we see yeah. this. We see this all the time. You see it with Trey Anthony. You see it with John Mighton. You see it with with writers with particular voices who get a big following behind them, who can almost pack any theater when they're doing something. But the problem we've always had in the theater, and the thing that's always driven me crazy, is most theater people don't know and don't want to know much about what's going on in the real world. Mm. There's an insularity to the theatre and to a lot of the work that's made there that I think limits our audiences naturally, that it just says to people, please don't come, we're making this for people who are not like you. And that's very unfortunate, and it's gotten more true. I mean, you know, I've been working in the theatre for over 40 years now. I mean, there was a time when theatres really worked for community outreach and to get out there and to meet the people and to find out what they want and to get that audience. But that's all kind of gone out the window and and it's come to a point where really we're just performing theatre for other theatre people most Mm. of the time, except in the most commercial houses, but generally speaking in our Canadian theatres and our smaller theatres, the audience that is coming is the same audience that has always come, or it's young people who want to be in the theater. But we don't see a lot of the average person going to plays, and I think that's really unfortunate.
0: I think that's really unfortunate too, and I think it. I think you're right. It does have to do like if we're not if we're not bothering to find out what people want to see, if we spend all of our time disparaging the kinds of movies that Hollywood puts out, which still bring in audiences and things yes. like that. If if we're Totally ignoring the rest of the world, and we're still doing our, 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 essentially, our living room dramas or our kitchen dramas, then we're really missing in, in the entire audience that's not our friends and family.
1: Yeah, and and basically, yes, exactly. And it's a place where academics feel comfortable. And I hate that about the theatre, because it shouldn't be a place where academics feel comfortable. It should be a place where a great many people feel uncomfortable and also thrilled at the same time. And yet, when you talk to artistic directors, and this is as true now as it was when I was starting out, predominantly they work on a level of fear. Mm. They work on a level of non-confrontation. They're terrified that someone's going to write a letter of complaint. They're terrified. They're not terrified that no one will show up because they're going to get the grant money to keep the theater going no matter what. Mm. They're actually terrified someone might show up and respond to what they're actually doing. And I think that's why our theaters have become really not very valid places for the average person to go anymore.
0: No, because it's to me one of the most the the things that I always hate to hear, but I've heard it so many times is mentioning a play to somebody. And I saw a play once, and I didn't like it, so I don't like the theater. Like this is the the it just means that that like we are not engaging with people. I would love to get the uh, a letter if you've pissed somebody off and they took a chance uh, the time to write the letter. Like you're doing something exciting. I think it's really too bad that 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 theaters are afraid to take the chance of thrilling people.
1: Yeah, well, there's a lot of that that goes on. And I mean, I remember at one point that uh, there was a small theater, I won't mention where it was, uh, not in this country, that uh, opened Remains and got these these polarizing reviews about how horrible and how brilliant it was at the same time. And sales went through the roof and mm. I phoned to congratulate them. And they actually were angry because they didn't know how to keep up with the demand. So they were mad that my play was selling so many tickets that they couldn't keep up with the demand because they didn't they'd never had anything that people wanted to see that much before. And they didn't want to rise to the occasion. They just wanted to be angry about it. That's so tragic. That's so, so tragic. tragic. It says it's, it's, it's so true. I mean, yeah. it is it's very sad.
0: Now, does the success of a play like uh, unidentified Human Remains, does that does that make it the easier for you to approach a theater with a new play or more difficult?
1: Well, it, it actually does both, you know, because people are very interested in, and, you know, I was lucky, and I, I mean that quite uh, non-ironically, that a lot of producers saw money signs when I walked into the room. You could see the dollar signs light up in their eyes, whatever I was doing, and therefore, There was a period where I could go into a number of different theatres, and and most of them tended to be more commercial rather than the uh, other kind of theatres, and say, you know, this is what I'm working on. And they would say, yeah, we're very interested in that. But the problem is people come in with an expectation that your next project is going to be like your last one. Hmm. And my whole thing has always been throughout my career not to repeat myself, to try to explore different forms and different concerns and different worlds and different Mm -hmm. kinds of characters. So people can come in expecting Remains and then they get something like The Ugly Man, which was my follow-up to Remains, which is uh, an adaptation of the Revengers tragedy, which is a classic uh, Jacobian uh, uh, revenge tragedy Mm. and full of blood and gore, but not in the same way that Remains was. And they all kind of went, what the hell is this? This is not what we were expecting. And even... Even Poor Superman, which was the next play, uh, had some of the same concerns in terms of sexuality and in terms of gender, but none of the violence, none of the none of the melodrama of remains. Hmm. It was a much smaller, more domestic kind of play. But again, then people responded better to that one because it was more like what they expected.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Is and I don't even know if this is a question that can be answered, but is that a is that is is having that successful play so near the beginning of your career that people are looking to and keep thinking that's what you're going to be giving them, is that a bit of a burden to carry or do you just not care?
1: One learns not to care. And, you know, it wasn't that uh, early on in, in my career. I mean, I had, you know, I had my, I won my first playwriting competition when I was 18. I had my first mm. production of Mutants when I was 21 and I'd had three or four other productions by then. I had just turned 30 when uh, Remains happened. Mm. So it wasn't like, you know, I was a, suddenly had written one play and it was a huge hit and what I'm going to do. I had plenty of experience with failure prior sure. to that, thankfully, because that's mostly what you're going to get in the theater. But mm. there was a period in the late 90s, early 2000s, where I did feel a bit like, one of those singers who has a hit song and none of their other songs ever quite make it. And so they're always going around and trotting out that one song that they're known for. And I, I was getting quite resentful about it. And I even left the theater for a while. Hmm. Uh, but after that, you know, and after I had done a movie and we did Queer Spoke and things like that, and I'd, I'd stayed away for a while, when I came back to the theater, I really didn't care. When I write a play, I write a play that wants to, because I want to explore something theatrical. That appeals to me that I think might appeal to other people and I'll do my best and see how it goes. And I was lucky enough to have a, you know, a 20 year relationship with the Royal Exchange Theater in Manchester, England, where they literally did every play that I wrote and where I am the only playwright there who's been produced more than me is Shakespeare. Hmm. You know, so I had a an artistic home for two decades with an artistic director who believed in me and and would put what I was doing up, even if it wouldn't succeed in the same way Remains or Poor Superman had, because he understood it was important to my development to get me to the next thing we would be working on. Hmm.
0: That's, I mean, to have that is is really quite a gift for
1: any playwright. It is, and I always wanted that in Canada, and I never got it. It's so um, ironic, and yet maybe typical that you know someone from Manchester had to do it because I couldn't get it in my own country. And in fact, you know, after the year two thousand, the the productions in Canada went way down, but the productions hmm. in England and other parts of the world went way up.
0: Hmm. That's any idea why that is, or or is to, has Canada just continued to get uh, more? conservative in its theatrical productions
1: i think canada felt like oh brad Fraser. we've had enough brad fraser we we (laughs) want we want other people now it had nothing to do with the audience it has Mm. to do with the people who program and the people who perceive me as being a particular type and and people who perceive me as being hostile to the theater which i am in the Mm. same way that i'm hostile to mediocrity Mm. in any situation and i know i haven't made myself a lot of uh uh, friends in certain theaters around uh, around Canada. But at the same time, there also weren't like a ton of people I wanted to work with here that I mm. felt would understand what I was doing and be able to enhance it. And I felt like I had to go a little farther afield to do that. Not that there aren't actors and directors and people that I love here in Canada, but I just felt like I had done as much as I could do here. And if I wanted to learn more, I had to to go beyond what I was seeing here, and I have to say, working with directors in Italy or working with directors in Brazil or working with directors in, in other countries with other languages where they have other ideas of how theatre can be produced and presented mm. has been really important to me and a, and a really uh, a great bonus to my writing because it really has exposed me to a lot of different ways of working.
0: Now you mentioned being hostile to the theater. Um, do you, when you say that, are you hostile to the theater or are you hostile to Canadian theater? Is that the issue?
1: But, uh, you know, bad theater isn't confined to Canada. Mm. You know, uh, gutless theater is not confined to Canada. In fact, mm. you can go to New York and you can see tons of theater mm-hmm. that has no spine at all, and and, and London and is all being done for presentation and show. So you know, I don't want I don't want to make it seem like I'm bashing the Canadian theater because. It is, it, it does happen everywhere, but there yeah. is a, a kind of homogenousness to Canadian theatre, I find. And it comes from, uh, they tend to hire artistic directors who have the same education, mm. often from the same people. Mm. And so they're not often open to other ways of working or other ideas of what theatre could be or even being challenged, which I think is, is quite unfortunate hmm
0: definitely about the idea of being uh, challenged i think that there is an attitude and i've i've seen it all over the place people are afraid to criticize people are afraid to people who are not theater critics or maybe some of them as well people are afraid to be critical of the theaters and and the plays that they do and things like that almost as if as if challenging the this the the upper creative class is can be death to your career and 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 who knows, maybe it would be if you're not, if you don't, I don't know if you're not of that class. But I think that the idea that that we cannot criticize the organizations mm-hmm. and the productions that they do, that we cannot ask them to challenge us more is really sort of a, a, a keeps uh, the mediocrity pumping out.
1: Yeah, well, and and I've always said that, and I've had no problem challenging anyone on something that I think isn't up to par or is mediocre or they're backing away from because it's too difficult and they want to try something harder. And and again, you don't make yourself any friends by Mm. doing that kind of thing. And And if you're a gay man or if you're a woman of color or something, you get known as being difficult for doing that, whereas white women when they do that or straight white guys when they do it are known as being uncompromising. Mm. Not that they do it as much, but it is, a, it is a double-edged sword and often the people at the top are the people who are the actual problem.
0: Well, I mean, the people at the top are the ones that 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 sort of like they're the ones who say our audience won't like that. They're the ones who 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 program. They're the ones who 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 yet again another play, another season of plays set in either a kitchen or a living room.
1: Um, yeah, although the kitchen and living room plays, I'm kind of pining for them because what we get much more hmm. now are someone's kind of identity confession and claiming of their of minoritarian victim status and then dragging us through their uh, process as if that somehow excuses how how amateur it can be sometimes, seems to be much more what's going on than those those kind of plays. And what I've seen in the Canadian theatre in particular are directors who don't actually know how to direct plays anymore. Mm. So they're much much more comfortable doing a collective, well, they don't call them collective creations anymore. They call them verbatim theatre or uh, cooperative theatre or something where we're not actually going to learn any lines, we're not actually going to do any blocking, and we're not actually even going to really tell a story, but we're going to share something with you that our teacher would have liked in university. Mm. And, and those ones make me scream for the days when we had bad kitchen plays and that kind of thing Hmm. because at least there was an attempt at narrative and at least there was an attempt at some kind of craft in presenting the play and that Hmm. seems to have fallen completely by the wayside
0: Hmm. I mean there is something to be you have to present something there has to be a I don't know back when I was back when I was growing up I was reading all books about theater they would talk about the tableau and i didn't really understand what that meant but there needs to be you know it, there needs to be it needs to be drama it needs to look good there needs to be a uh there needs to be movement there's so many things that there should be and and a bunch of people standing still uh uh sharing their verbatim whatever is not there's a lack of drama in there
1: yes and and that's because we have developed a theater that is actually afraid of conflict just like we've developed a world that's afraid of conflict when in fact Conflict is the only thing that promotes any meaningful or constructive change hmm. a lot of the time. And we've taught young people to be, to be afraid of it. And, you know, one thing I talk about in, in the um, memoir is that I come from a background of conflict Mm. and I had to fight for everything I got in my life and I've never been afraid to do it. And I've never been afraid to walk into a theater and get in conflict with somebody because things aren't going the way they are. But that doesn't, again, make you a lot of friends in Mm. the theater. People are very frightened by that. Even if it's non-confrontational and not all conflict has to be angry or confrontational, Mm -hmm. it can take a lot of different forms, but you know, the theater is based on conflict. People, you can't mm. be afraid of it on any level.
0: Hmm. No, that's true. I'm just sort of switching gears just a little bit. I'm curious about how you have been dealing during the uh, the last year and a bit. The pandemic. Were you working on something at the start of this, or or how have you been? How have you been handling it?
1: Well, I was actually pretty lucky because after a number of years with very little going on, I got uh, a movie production of my latest play, Kill Me Now, in South Korea was made. And so that was going on. And at the same time, excuse me, I signed a deal with a production company here to do the Canadian version uh, Hmm. film of the same play. And I was writing this memoir. I was putting that I had to put the final uh, touches, which took a year, on the books, so I had a lot to keep me busy, and and honestly, you know, I've been self-employed for forty years now. I haven't had another job. I work out of home. I do a lot of stuff out of my home. So the only really big change in my life is I'm not seeing as many of my friends mm. as I used to, and I'm becoming very aware of how important that was to the mm. kind of lifestyle I lead. That those those times of getting out to see people and having people over and things like that are really important, and I miss them. I miss them very much but i also um i care for uh, an 85 year old uh, neighbor of mine who has dementia who was an only child and has no family and has no one so Uh, my uh, relationship with her has become much stronger Hmm. and uh, much more. our our lives have been much more entwined over this last 14 months because I literally have to do everything for her. I mean, Hmm. I have to buy her food. I have to get her drugs. I have to set up her appointments. You know, I have to check in and make sure she's eating and all of that. So being responsible for somebody else in a period like this is actually a gift Hmm. because it stops you from getting wanky and feeling sorry for yourself, right? Yeah. Because you have to function. You have to be there for them.
0: Hmm. Yeah, definitely. That that would be I think I sometimes I wonder if that's why so many people have have gotten dogs over the last little while. I've seen an explosion of people getting dogs. And I think a lot of that has to do with the need to have something to be responsible for another living thing to have to be responsible for.
1: Yeah, and hopefully they'll be responsible for those dogs even when this is over, and we won't see a huge dump of rehomed dogs going to shelters uh, because really people now realize that when you leave your house for eight hours a day, your dog is a very different creature than it is when you're around all the time mm-hmm. and, and has other requirements. So I'm hoping that people keep the responsibility with that. I mean, I have a cat. I've, I've had cats my whole life, mm-hmm. and uh, I've, she's been great to have during this pandemic because she makes me laugh every day.
0: Yeah. The, the, that whole dog thing is, is, you know, I think, uh, you know, I had a dog for many, many years. And, and I think, a lot, you know, you, you, your life revolves around the animal, you mm-hmm. know, and, and, um, these, these, these dogs that are new, they're, they're growing up in, in their world where their people are always there. And I think there could be a boom industry of dog trainers who help to prepare dogs for when their people go back to work.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it is is—it is going to be a big change. I have to mm-hmm. say, even my cat has been so thrilled that I'm home all the time. She just, mm. She's just delighted to have me here at her beck and call constantly, <laughs> you know. So when when things go back to normal and I'm away for uh, 6, 10 hours, 12 hours a day when I'm rehearsing or something, it'll be a big change for her as well.
0: Yeah, she'll probably find some way to punish you.
1: Oh, yeah, she totally will. <laughs> um.
0: One of the questions that I've been been asking everybody who's come on in the last uh, 14 months is about about joy. We all need some joy in our lives and we all need uh, to I think it's good to remind each other of the joys in our own lives. So uh, aside from your cat, what's what's one of the joys uh, that you've that you've been experiencing uh, over the last 14 months?
1: Uh well seeing Shirley my friend is always mm. a joy she's you know generally chipper she's generally glad to see me uh doing something good for someone else makes me feel very good and brings me great joy um uh, you know my friend Spencer and I who's the only other person in my bubble we put together a new season of our web series old movies for young people that's on YouTube and we've been editing that and doing all the work on it and and being with him and working with him brings me Uh, great joy and you just have to find it where you can get it because it's Mm. not in the usual places these days
0: yeah no absolutely we're all trying to figure out how to navigate you know and we're still trying to figure out what is what is not seeing my friends for a year mean except on a screen
1: yes exactly and seeing them on a screen is or talking to them on the phone is not the same thing at all you know no no, and it also puts a, a tremendous pressure on those people in our lives that we do see, mm-hmm. because they are it. They are yeah. the only people that we see, so they are looked at to supply a great many things. That, in my case, anyway, uh, are usually distributed about, among a larger number of people.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know,
1: so there can be a, there can be a lot of expectation there as well.
0: Yeah. Now you mentioned uh, uh, old movies for young people. What can you tell me? What what is that? I mean, the title seems to to explain it all, but I'm, I'm curious about about uh, what inspired that and, and uh, what yeah, kind of sure. movies can young people see?
1: Well, um, eight years ago, maybe nine, just about nine years ago, I did my master's at the University of Toronto and I was the oldest fellow in the class and the gayest. And there was a young guy who was 22 years old who was straight, who was my exact opposite in the class. And we hit it off, really well. We got along great. We became very good friends. He's a young writer. I've mentored him. Uh, He's uh, uh, assistant directed for me. He's stage managed for me. And part of our relationship from the very beginning is once a week, I would show him a movie from the 20th century. And we would talk about it. And I would just try to show him something. Often they're queer themed Mm-hmm. But um not not entirely, not exclusively, but there are movies that I that I personally like that I think other people would like, and he usually likes them, although not always. And so mm-hmm. eventually we had watched you know so many movies we had talked about them, we went, you know, we should do this and let other people in on it, let them mm-hmm. in on the let them in on the discussion because we enjoyed doing it so much. So uh, we did our first season, which was a technical nightmare. We screwed everything up, but we were mm-hmm. committed and we got, Um, you know, we got our 10 episodes out. We looked at 10 different movies and, uh, you know, we talk about whether or not they will play for a 21st century audience for his peer group and people that are younger. And that often leads to very spirited conversations. But recently we did the second season and we acquitted ourselves much better technically. And we did all, we do double features where we pit one movie against another. The opening one this season was, uh, uh tommy versus jesus christ superstar which one is better and we argue about which one is better and uh, we just have a good time doing it and hopefully bring another audience in to watch these great films that you know would be a shame to see them lost because they were part of of the zeitgeist of the 20th century and they often um bring up really interesting discussions today about misogyny, about homophobia, about racism, about how different the world was not that long ago.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, these these movies being lost is one of the reasons why I think I've been I've been thinking about about, uh, ho- about video stores, video right. rental stores, and all of the movies that you could get at those that, you know, unless you are fortunate enough to have a video store in your town, you may you're stuck with just whatever is available on whatever streaming services you have or what you can buy from iTunes. And there's a lot of movies that you can't get that way.
1: Yeah, no, they're very hard to find, and some of them you have no choice but to turn to torrents and that kind of thing Mm -hmm. uh, to get them. But they're out there, and we do try to include where you can find them legally Mm. uh, with everything that we show. But you're right, it's with, you know, uh, even discs and Blu-rays and things, at least you had an artifact that you could go back to. Mm -hmm. With all that stuff uh, uh, disappearing, it just becomes this ethereal, ephemeral thing in the air that, that only a corporation owns and that you can never have in your hands, if you know what Mm -hmm. I mean. (laughs) In that sense, it's a bit like uh, the early days of television or even pre-television where a movie came and you saw it and then it basically disappeared. You never saw it again unless it was shown on TV or something. But there were very few re-releases, so Mm -hmm. it was much harder. It wasn't until the 80s when they started releasing video cassettes of classic movies and that kind of thing and even more obscure stuff that for, you know, 20 or 30 years we had this wonderful resource – of films that weren't lost because you had them in your hand, mm-hmm. and and again, now we're standing we're we're standing on that that precipice of what happened with so many silent films when they fell out of favor that they were just uh, uh, destroyed, disbanded, thrown away. Nobody cared about them anymore. And consequently, we've lost more silent films than we actually have now.
0: Yeah, I was actually thinking about that as you were as you were talking about that, and 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 you know. Thinking about you know if you can actually look at the list of films that say a Charlie Chaplin wrote, like or P- Mary Pickford or Buster Keaton and there are films that 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 you know just don't exist and even more of people that we don't know so well and I think that you're right we are there is a danger of of losing access to all of these great movies from the past so I think it's great that uh, that you're sharing those you
1: know movies are like plays in that way though I mean they are a product of the moment. They are meant to be sold at the time. They aren't Mm -hmm. meant necessarily to be watched 10, 15, 20 years from now. And if you look at all of the movies or all of the plays that have been produced, very few of them are worth rewatching, no matter Mm -hmm. how popular they were at the time. I mean, if you watch, you know, the seventies disaster movies, for example, uh, uh, Earthquake and the towering Inferno, the Poseidon adventure, um, they don't speak in our language anymore. They're yeah. too slow. They're mm-hmm. too drawn out. The camera work is too static. And we have the same issue with silent movies. We do mm-hmm. you know, a silent movie every season because I love showing Spencer silent movies. And it's taken time for him to get on board because... You're learning a new vocabulary. Yes. You really are. You're learning a visual vocabulary and a style of acting that we don't see anymore. And that's also true of 1940s movies. That's mm-hmm. true of 1960s movies, even 1990s movies mm-hmm. compared to today that every every contemporary audience has a way of looking at films that's really valid at the time, but often doesn't last longer than a decade.
0: no. That's certainly true. I remember recently trying to, I decided I was going to like, I don't know why, rewatch some of the Terminator movies because why not? And I think I got, I, have, I wasn't quite able to make that adjustment because the movies move, like you say, at a, different, as, at a different pace. And I was like, how did I like this? Why is this so boring? And it's like, no, that's the pace that movies moved at at that time. Now we move a lot faster.
1: Yeah, although I will say Terminator 2 is still one of the best movies I think I've ever seen. Terminator, Aliens and The Bride of Frankenstein are the two be- are the three best uh sequels that have ever been made and I can go back and watch them anytime. And part of, you know, part of the the um, watching it with Spencer is explaining to him why the pacing is different, mm. why we're doing it differently at that time. Because of course, you know, film has been around for over a hundred years now and we have become very sophisticated in the way we consume it mm. and what we expect from it. And it isn't at all what it was at the very beginning, but if you watch the very beginning, all of the techniques, all of the camera work, all of the innovations were made in the first 20 years of filmmaking, and very little has changed since then.
0: Hmm. It's interesting because because those movies were basically meant to be seen once at hmm. the theater. Maybe you might go back and see it again, but see see it and forget it. They had to lay it out. They had to lay everything out. In a more meticulous manner. There were no Easter eggs, no things in the background that you were going to discover later because you watched it a 100 times on VHS. So right. that means that, that you, you can't make a movie in the same way then as you do now because you just assumed nobody was ever going to see it after that first time.
1: Yeah, well, and it, it's like if you look at the original King Kong, you know, it's like uh, under 90 minutes or just around 90 minutes long. Mm-hmm. We've got, you know, we're in New York and we've got the ocean voyage and we've got the the uh, islanders and we've got the dinosaurs and we've got the kidnapping of the girl. We've got the trip back to New York and we've got the escape in New York. And, and that all happens in an hour and a half. Mm. Whereas Peter Jackson's version of, of King Kong, is over two hours long and Mm. it's full of all those same things. But the thing is, it was made for a DVD market. It, was, yes. it wasn't so much made for the theater. I mean, yes, it was made for the theater, but the reason it's so long and episodic is because it, we're used to people picking and choosing the best parts of the film mm. to show someone. I know I do that quite often that there'll be a sequence or something. We don't need to watch the whole film. Just watch the sequence. It's really good. <laughs> and I think that's the main difference of why the King, the, you know, the later King Kong is so bloated and so, overdone is because it's going to be watched again and again it's going to Mm. be watched in parts it's going to be watched at home you know so it doesn't have the same uh the same kind of uh objective as going to a movie theater to see a movie and then a couple cartoons and a newsreel and let's get on to the next showing so we can make some more money
0: Hmm. well brad thank you thank you so much for having this conversation with me today i really appreciate it
1: no problem i hope it was uh i hope it was helpful